0: Hi, I'm Ravi Agrawal. I'm the Editor-in-Chief of Foreign Policy magazine. Welcome to Global Reboot. When we began this show in 2021, people around the world, but mostly in the West, were just beginning to get vaccines for COVID-19. The pandemic had wrought so many big, dramatic changes around the world and inflicted so much pain that we thought it was an apt moment to examine fixes. We wanted to explore grand solutions, global reboots, to the world's biggest problems. And so we did. We looked at how to prevent the next pandemic. We examined how to combat racism once and for all. We asked how we could make the world less unequal. And we tried to think through how to manage the complex US-China relationship. We did all of those things with guests who have spent lifetimes thinking about these very issues. Dr. Bernice King, the economists Mariana Matsukato and Raghuram Rajan, U.S. Climate Envoy John Kerry, and many more. If it were at all possible, 2022 has brought us even more problems. We now have an ongoing interstate war. We have the threat of nuclear war. There's a global food shortage. There's an energy crisis. And amid all this, global cooperation on dealing with climate change has taken a backseat. It is with that backdrop that we begin another season of Global Reboot, in partnership with the Doha Forum. The idea here isn't just to discuss problems, but to explore solutions. And over the course of this season, you will hear from experts on human rights, climate financing, democracy, food, and much else, all big problems that we need to fix. We begin, though, with a discussion that looks at many of these problems combined. Ian Bremmer has a new book out called The Power of Crisis. Bremmer is the founder and president of Eurasia Group, a political risk consultancy. In his book, he describes the biggest problems confronting humanity today and makes the case that it is only with big existential crises that the world comes together to cooperate on fixes. One emerges from Bremer's book actually a little bit hopeful. I thought it would be a good place to start. Ian, welcome to the show. Ravi, good to be with you, my friend. You've just written a book that is actually about three major threats so, another global health emergency, climate change, and the rise of disruptive technologies such as AI. And then since your book is called The Power of Crisis you go on to explain how to navigate these challenges. So I want to take on each of these challenges individually in a bit but let me just start with this. How did
1: you pick these three crises and why? Well first of all to be to make it a little easier it's really about the fact that over the last 20 years our global order has been unwinding. We've sort of slipped into this G0 world a cyclical geopolitical recession, where our institutions are no longer fit for purpose and aren't aligned with the balance of power uh, that exists today. And that creates a whole bunch of crises. In the seeds of these crises are the ability to create institutions that will become a new global order that will be fit for purpose again. But I mean, it seems pretty obvious that if you're gonna write about how crisis will drive the next global order, you have to write about the crises that are big enough that actually kick us in the ass. And that's that's how I picked these three.
0: Now, it's interesting because you have those big three, but then you also have two sort of enmeshed concerns within them and, and you, you call them collision courses in the book so the fact that america is as polarized as it is and then the fact that the world's two biggest economies the u.s and china are increasingly at odds with each other these are both trends that you see
1: as the trends of uh, you know our lifetimes essentially right? yeah and and furthermore they're not fixable in the near term so i had to be honest and say look We're going to look at these crises and we're going to look at how these crises are going to help us change the global order. But we have to recognize that the United States, the most powerful country in the world, it's also the most politically dysfunctional and divided of the G7, of the advanced industrial democracies. And that's not going to get fixed in the next 10 years. And then the United States and the China relationship, which is the most important geopolitical relationship in the world, and it's completely devoid of trust. And I want to say that any solutions that I'm going to give you, have to be solutions that I actually see happening over the course of the next five to 10 years. So they have to be solutions that are going to occur even though the US is still politically dysfunctional and even though the United States and China do not create a G2. Because you're realistic
0: and you're taking on things you think are are in the realm of of achieving. Let's move us towards solutions. And I I just want to go one by one on sort of the main things, the big ticket items that you take on, uh, the reboot sort of part of this conversation, Yep. Yep. pandemic preparedness. So what have we learned from COVID-19 so far? And why do you think we can get better at preventing the next one?
1: Mixed messages that have come out of COVID. I wish the lessons were better holistically. They're not. But there are Mm. positive messages. Positive message number one, the initial months the United States really got our act together. We did on vaccines faster than anyone else out there. And it's not just because we had these great entrepreneurs, but also because the U.S. government leaned into it with Operation Warp Speed. Secondly, in an enormously divided country, Pelosi and Mnuchin, trillions of dollars of response and this was not a bailout for the rich this was a bailout for the country and it allowed a v-shaped recovery that nobody expected and furthermore dr fauci in the first months people forget this now because he's become such you know sort of a political litmus test but he was lionized i mean he was he became a hero that's why there were all of these figurines for Fauci. And because Mm -hmm. this 80 year old dude with his little white jacket was the one that we all wanted to listen to, to figure out like how to avoid dying. And so it did feel like we were getting our act together. And then the other major lesson out there is the Europeans really did use this longer term to make Europe stronger. They took on both the acquisition and distribution of vaccines as a new authority for the EU and made sure that all Europeans had access to it, not just the rich ones. And they Mm. also created an internal Marshall Plan for development from the wealthy countries to the poor countries, the opposite of what they did when Greece went under, that, that ultimately created more support for a strong and united European Union. Unlike the United States, which emerges from the pandemic now later, more divided and more dysfunctional Europe comes out of the pandemic actually stronger and more resilient as the most powerful supranational governmental institution in the world today.
0: Wow. And let's remember the first few months were rougher on uh, rich European countries. Yes. Um, Italy. I oh, my friends God. in Germany, for sure. example, who were saying we could buy up all the vaccines, but because we're part of the EU, we have to share them with everyone. But, you know, the, the, the flip side of this is the rest of the world. So one of the other narratives from COVID is that in many other parts of the world, mostly in the global South, vaccines were slower to reach people. But not only that... It's the last mile infrastructure that people struggled with. So even when there was vaccine capacity, when the supply issue was fixed, there were other problems. There was delivery, there was demand. And then there were other infrastructural issues with hospitals, with basic health care, with uh, primary care in many parts of the world. What lessons are we learning yeah. on, on that front? How does the power of
1: crisis help us? Tough there? one. I think that, unfortunately as the Americans no longer viewed the crisis as urgent because it was, well, it's just old people and it's sick people and we can vaccinate them and the rest of us can live the way we want to, the urgency around stopping the pandemic in the rest of the world went way down. And you're absolutely right that in that environment, the fact that the Indians who were good enough to produce vaccines for the rest of the world, we were happy to accept that, but when they suddenly needed help and they were begging for one plane load of vaccines from the Americans, and we still were like trying to make sure our population got boosted, and we said, sorry, talk to the hand. Like that wasn't a great message to our friends in the quad. And no surprise that they've not been helping us with the Russians more recently, for example. But also more broadly, I mean, in Africa, you had vaccines that were literally expiring because no one spent the money to ensure that there was infrastructure on the ground to actually get jabs and arms. And by the way, another big problem is the Chinese who have the infrastructure to get jabs and arms were so smug about the fact that they were able to lock down and track and trace and surveil when the pandemic was in its early versions and much less transmissible, suddenly the pandemic changes. And now you have, you know, actual variants that are closer to measles Mm-hmm. in their transmissibility and the chinese suddenly aren't prepared because their over 80 population far less than 50% of them were vaccinated and that's just unconscionable so i mean again lessons can be learned from all of that but this was a big opportunity unfortunately there were a lot of wasted opportunities and on balance the pandemic was not one that i would say was a positive experience for the next global order
0: Let's jump to the other crisis of this century, um, provided we get through it, uh, climate change. And, uh, you know, I, I like how you framed it in the beginning. It's net zero meets G zero as sort of part of the problem. So in other words, the race to reach net zero emissions is coming up against a G zero world. Uh, you know, the phrase you coined to describe a sort of multi or nonpolar world. Lay out that problem a little bit. But this is an issue that you're you're actually more optimistic about.
1: Yeah, and it's kind of funny. I view climate in many ways as a Goldilocks crisis, big enough to force us to make changes that are Mm. really hard, but not so big that we feel like we can't actually respond, that we feel paralyzed by fear and the scale of the challenge. Climate change is that. I'm optimistic for two reasons. First of all, because we've now gotten to a point that there is only one side to be on. 195 mm. countries now every year have an intergovernmental panel on climate change, and they all agree that climate change is real, that it's anthropogenic. It's not cyclical from nature. We're doing it. because, And the transmission mechanism is carbon and methane in the atmosphere. We understand Actually, it. And we all remember COP meetings where there were climate deniers who were being uh, rolled yep. out as part of the uh, discussion. Yeah, Absolutely. That's gone that's gone. It's everyone. It's the emitters, and it's the rich, and it's the developing. We all agree that as of right now, it's 1.2 centigrade warming that we've hit. We all agree where it's hitting, where it's hitting less, who's being impacted the most, and what the scenarios are going forward. That's astonishing. First of all, that gives you an enormous opportunity. Because I said that the US and China aren't going to get together and have a kumbaya moment, but they don't need to because we now see that the chinese are putting all of this money into nuclear and into wind and into solar and into infrastructure for electric vehicles around the world and we're saying wait a second we can't let the chinese become the energy superpower of the 21st century we have to start investing in that so we can be the leaders well, that that's great i mean i'd rather if we were working together but i'll take virtuous competition over a vicious cycle to the bottom. And and furthermore, it's not just about the US and China. It's about the EU that's way ahead of both the Americans and the Chinese. It's about banks and corporations responding to NGOs and individuals, consumers, clients who are saying, we are not going to invest with you or buy your goods unless you actually accept that we need a transformation, a transition. And so much money is now going into solar and wind and advanced nuclear and EVs, that we're seeing at scale, these things are becoming cheaper than fossil fuels, especially in today's Russia invades Ukraine environment. And what that means is that at some point within a generation, a majority of the world's energy will no longer come from unsustainable stuff that we pull out of the planet. And that's incredible. It's a vastly better scenario than anyone had expected 10 years ago. And it means that we're not aiming for four or five or six degrees of warming before we hit net zero and start taking carbon out of the atmosphere. It means we're aiming for 1.5 to 2.5 degrees of warming. Now, the difference in those two numbers represents hundreds of trillions of dollars and hundreds of millions of lives. I mean, we need to keep the foot right. on the accelerator. Even the best
0: case scenario still involves losses, as you
1: Yes, of course. And that there's a lot to still play for. But the fact is that we are on track to actually effectively responding to this crisis as collective humanity. And that is an enormously big deal. You know, one thing
0: occurs to me that so much of this is about the size and scale of the crisis, because... Coming back to where we began this conversation and, you know, back to G zero, if you look at the war in Ukraine and you look at how it's united large parts of the West, less so in the rest, China, India, much of South Asia, countries in Africa and Latin America, that's more than half the world's population that isn't willing to back sanctions against Russia. I mean, does that mean that this crisis for most countries, the, the war in Ukraine, is not a big enough crisis?
1: Yeah, oh, definitely. Um, And it also means that when the scale of the entrenched lack of cooperation is greater, the size of the crisis you need to overcome it is greater. I mean, the fact is that the developing world has been losing faith in the United States and other advanced industrial allies for a long time. And the response to the pandemic deepened that. And the response to climate change You didn't ask me this, but if you had said, Ian, what's the thing that's going to get us to 1.5 as opposed to 2.5? And I'm not optimistic we're going to get to 1.5, by the way. I'm not. I mean, if you made me bet, I would say we're probably going to be closer to 2.2, 2.3, which sucks. But the thing that would make a difference would be treating Indians like human beings, Mm. for example. I mean, you know- As in basically saying that you need energy,
0: you need air conditioning, you need all these things that Other countries have. Let's figure out how to do it in an equitable, sustainable way.
1: Of course, because we, the wealthy countries, are the ones that have put all of the carbon into the planet. We are the ones that are responsible for being at 1.2 degrees. The Indians have quality of life that is vastly worse than ours and now are facing headwinds because of us. And if they are going to face 120 degrees, And they don't want to deal with rolling blackouts in their country. And the only available energy to them that's inexpensive is coal. Well, then we better be the ones that are going to pay for them to make that transition. And the same thing is true with deforestation in the Amazon. Do do you see that happening? Not fast enough. That's why I said, if you made me bet, I think that we're going to be closer to 2.5 than 1.5. And I think that there's an enormous gap between those two things. But I'm convinced that we won't be at three or four or five or six. And that's because we are actually taking this seriously. We're just not yet taking it seriously and not fast enough for the rest of the world. We aren't yet willing to see that Indians are human beings. I mean, it really is that.
0: Yeah. That is, you know, what I, it is. I, Ian, I would actually broaden it a little bit more. I mean, all of South Asia, frankly, which then becomes part oh, no, no, no. of the world's population. I'm just making yeah. the
1: example because right. it is, you know, it's t- their net zero is 2070 right. and they have right. no plan to get there. Right. And there's 1.5 billion of them. So right. it's the easy way to say it. It's non-white people, it's non-rich people, it's the people that aren't us. And we're not willing to treat them like human beings fundamentally. I mean, America first is a policy that says we don't really rate other people. Because I mean, you're literally stripping the humanity of the vast majority of the planet. And that's a really hard thing to take when we're in the process of harming our planet.
0: It's having this giant existential crisis that everyone can agree on, which was the first part of the struggle. But it's when you have something that everyone agrees on is the thing we need to focus on the most, that's when you unleash all these other forces that you're describing, cooperation,
1: competition. Yeah, and and it's not only that you have only one side. It's also that as time passes, your priors are being confirmed. Every day, every week, every month, citizens around the world are going, This is affecting me in my backyard. It's not just saving the whales and hugging trees. It's not just Bangladesh going underwater. It's California, it's Texas, it's Florida. These are life-changing events that everyone on the planet can see, making them want to respond with more urgency every day. So I think that those two realities, the fact that there's only one side among the people that matter, to move move the needle, and the fact that your priors are becoming more confirmed is what's getting you a solution. But, you know, one of the threads through these
0: first two crises you're describing is sort of the power of science as well and the triumph of technology. And that leads me in part to the third uh, set of crises that you um, describe, And this one's a bit different where, you know, you have the rise of disruptive technologies where you frame this one more as initially uh, an opportunity where all these different new technologies, AI, the rise of smartphones, uh, Aadhaar in India, they are doing great things, but there are all of these risks. Um, Elaborate on that a little bit.
1: Well, we need to contain the disruptive side of these technologies. And this is so obvious and real to me in part because when I was a graduate student uh, starting my PhD in 1989, so the Soviet Union was still very much there, Cold War was still very much there. What was I studying? I was studying the containment of Mm -hmm. nuclear weapons technology. Uh, I was concerned about mutually assured destruction. And even though the Soviets and the Americans hated each other, we recognized that we didn't want the proliferation of nuclear technology into the hands of lots of other countries or non-state actors because that could mean the end of the planet. Mm. And that's why we even tried to contain nuclear technology between the Americans and the Soviets. I mean, the fact is that arms control was the one area that you had the greatest strategic engagement between these two countries. It was existential. So now we have the Americans and the Chinese, leading the world in the creation of all of these new technologies that are fundamentally both value creating but also very deeply threatening to the future of society the future of humanity and i'm talking about you know things as near term and real as uh, offensive cyber weapons um and lethal autonomous drones to algorithms and artificial intelligence that uh, create deep fakes and don't allow you to differentiate between who is and who is not a real human being, all the way to quantum computing. And it is very clear that we need to contain the application of these technologies to a small number of responsible actors that we don't want terrorist organizations having access to lethal autonomous drones. And yet there literally is no architecture between the Americans and the Chinese to try to prevent that from happening. Indeed, there's not even a basic agreement on what the problem is. Fortunately, unlike climate change, which is right now and real and in front of us, we still have a little bit of time before the nature of the threat becomes existential, but we also aren't yet at a place that we are addressing it.
0: Right. And and it's so necessary because you talked about nukes and deterrence and that, I think, you've studied it so much, so many scholars have written about it, but it kind of makes sense. Like the, the theory of deterrence makes sense because there, there are static arsenals on both sides. And one of the, the problems with cyber is you could have amazing capabilities today, but you know, if what you're actually doing is exploiting a vulnerability and the vulnerability is then closed, well, there goes that, that capability. I mean, you use a zero-day attack once, not twice. And so the risks you describe here, uh, and when you add in AI, is it's so much more dynamic, so much more messy, so much more unpredictable.
1: Yes, and uh, all but like nuclear weapons, so much more offensive. And so as a consequence, if you do not contain the proliferation, uh, defending against it is a fool's errand, right? I mean, it's going to be incredibly hard. There will be a mutually assured destruction between players that actually care about ensuring that they still have the ability to exist in a functional and global economy. But there are a lot of actors that don't care about that. And, you know, in the same way that we generally don't like it when emotionally disturbed 18-year-olds have access to AR-15s, when they do, some of them are going to use them in schools. Right. And that's a horrible thing, but not horrible enough that we change our legislation. So it is very clear that we have to treat this as a global existential challenge where the Americans and the Chinese may not trust each other. But like with climate, we must row in the same direction.
0: And what's your sense of what it would take to build some rules of the road around here? I mean, is there anything you're hearing or seeing that are early steps in that process?
1: Well, I mean, I'll tell you what I would start with. And it's sort of banal, but it's obvious once you say it, which is you need a intergovernmental panel on artificial intelligence. So you start with the groups of people that are involved in public policy, some coders, some tech company individual strategy types, and some government officials, some technocrats, you put them together, a global group, to identify the problem. What are the technologies that we're talking about here? Which are the ones that really are priorities and most dangerous? Which are the ones that may not be such a big deal? Where are there going to be adequate defenses if we only invest in them? And where is that not really possible? And then once you've done that, like you couldn't get the COP summit process going and effective until you had An understanding a recognition that, oh my God, this climate change really is real. We've got to do something about it because it'll cost something. Then you can say, we're prepared to Mm. invest real money. Then you'll put trillions into it, not before. And then you can create the metrics that actually allow you to say, what's the equivalent of net zero Mm. for the proliferation of disruptive AI. And that's where we have to go. This is one where I'm saying, no, I see a crisis, but there's a solution. And we are actually aligning already towards that solution, and we just need to move faster. Ian Bremmer, thanks for joining. Thank you, Rob.
0: And that was Ian Bremmer, the president and founder of Eurasia Group, a political risk consultancy and the author of The Power of Crisis. Thanks for listening to Global Reboot. I'm Ravi Agrawal, Foreign Policy's Editor-in-Chief. Our podcast is a partnership between Foreign Policy and Doha Forum. Our production staff includes Rosie Julin, Dan Efron, and Anissa Pazeshki. A special thanks also to Tal Alroy from FP Live for her help with this interview. If you like what you're hearing, please consider leaving a review and subscribe on Apple or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're interested in smart geopolitical news and analysis from around the world, consider subscribing to Foreign Policy. Global Reboot listeners can save 15% on their first month or year of FP access. Visit foreignpolicy.com slash subscribe. Enter the code REBOOT at checkout to claim the offer. Coming up next week, how to safeguard freedom of the press.
1: I've been a journalist for 36 years. And in less than two years, I get 10 arrest warrants. I don't think that's me. I think that's this context we live in.
0: We'll hear more from the inspirational journalist, publisher, Nobel Peace Prize laureate, Maria Ressa. That's next week on Global Reboot.